Yes, of course, if it's fine tomorrow, said Mrs. Ramsay, but you'll have to be up with the lark, she added. To her son, these words conveyed an extraordinary joy, as if it were settled the expedition were bound to take place, and the wonder to which he had looked forward for years and years, it seemed, was after a night's darkness and a day's sail within touch. Since he belonged, even at the age of six, to that great clan which cannot keep this feeling separate from that, but must let future prospects with their joys and sorrows cloud what is actually at hand, since to such people, even in earliest childhood, any turn in the wheel of sensation has the power to crystallize and transfix the moment upon which its gloom or radiance rests. James Ramsay, sitting on the floor, cutting out pictures from the illustrated catalogue of the army and navy stores, endowed the picture of a refrigerator as his mother spoke with heavenly bliss. It was fringed with joy. The wheelbarrow, the lawnmower, the sound of poplar trees, leaves whitening before rain, rooks calling, brooms knocking, dresses rustling, all these were so colored and distinguished in his mind that he had already his private code, his secret language. Though he appeared the image of stark and uncompromising severity with his high forehead and his fierce blue eyes, impeccably candid and pure, frowning slightly at the sight of human frailty, so that his mother, watching him guide his scissors neatly round the refrigerator, imagined him all red and ermine on the bench, or directing a stern and momentous enterprise in some crisis of public affairs. But, said his father, stopping in front of the drawing room window, it won't be fine. Had there been an axe handy, a poker, or any weapon that would have gashed a hole in his father's breast and killed him, there and then James would have seized it. Such were the extremes of emotion that Mr. Ramsay excited in his children's breasts by his mere presence. Standing, as now, lean as a knife, narrow as the blade of one, grinning sarcastically, not only with the pleasure of disillusioning his son and casting ridicule upon his wife, who was ten thousand times better in every way than he was, James thought, but also with some secret conceit at his own accuracy of judgment. What he said was true. It was always true. Welcome to Redeeming Reads, a podcast where we interpret classic novels in light of the gospel. I'm Taylor. And I'm Dylan. And today on the podcast, we're going to be talking about the short novel, To the Lighthouse by Virginia Woolf, uh, a super interesting and confusing story um, about a family in Scotland. But Dylan, before we jump into the, our discussion on the book, what are you drinking today? I have a Ethiopian Sadama. Um, it's not Sadamo, it's Sadama. Okay, what is, what is the difference? <laughs> uh, unclear to me, uh, but <laughs> it's a coffee that was from Coffee Exchange here in Providence. And uh, yeah, it's pretty good. It's a kind of a more medium roast, but there's some fruit notes that come out of it. But uh, it's kind of darker than I usually would go, but... I happen to have a stint of like really light roasts, I think, um, that we're just getting, I don't know. It's just hard to drink a light roast every single day. Um, yeah. and so this was a good change of pace for me. Nice. What are the, you said fruity is, mm -hmm. is the note. Okay. Yeah. I, yeah. I mean, I don't really know. I, I haven't taken much time to actually, I don't know. I, I don't still have time. <laughs> if, I, it, if you're not if you're not giving those notes to me uh i probably won't go looking for them yeah you know? fair enough i'm with you there 
I uh, actually myself not drinking tonight, but recently had a coffee that was a, I bought it without being able to see the beans and it was from a different roaster than I normally would buy from. And it was a little bit okay. darker. It was more on the medium side. I could tell because as soon as I opened the bag, the beans were like slightly oily, you know, which mm. is like leaning towards medium dark. And I was like, oh no, I'm going to hate this. And then I actually really liked it. I was mm. very pleasantly surprised. It was just a well done medium mm. roast. Um, okay. And it was it was pretty delicious. So I, I'm, I'm with you. Occasionally you need a change of pace. I feel like the notes that you find in light roasts they're, they're so kind of like precise and nuanced whereas if you go darker it's harder for me at least to like actually pick out dark notes it's like you know you hear like caramel or caramel or like cocoa no like those yeah. are just harder i think for me to identify than like some of the fruitier ones that are like berries or apple or something yeah i think because they all sort of blend into the same flavor for me more or less, or they're more similar across the board. Mm -hmm. And maybe that's just because I don't drink them very often. I might just be kind of biased against them. Mm -hmm. But well, tonight, I am drinking a, uh, it's a La Pradera, it's called, from Colombia. And it's actually a geisha from Colombia, which mm -hmm. is super exciting. So I think <laughs> this is the second time on the podcast I've had a geisha. Um, mm -hmm. The other one was like years ago, but um, geisha is supposed to be some of the, the best coffee in the world uh, comes from it's a varietal of an Ethiopian coffee um, and it this strain or whatever of of Arabica is supposed to be some of the best in the world that has some of the, <laughs> the best Omicron strain yeah 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 exactly the the uh, the Pradera strain um, <laughs> and the tasting notes that are listed on the bag are apricot honeysuckle and tea like and i think i disagree completely with all of those so i would not pick those out if i were trying i think if anything the first few days so this was roasted i think on the 22nd which means i probably drank it maybe a little too fast um sometimes it mm. needs a few extra days after roasting to really get to the the best notes and mm -hmm. um the first few days i had it it was very green tasting like mm olive oil sort of tasting maybe Ooh. a little bit like darker yeah. green mm -hmm. um, more than fruity and then yesterday i had a really good pour of it and it was more on that fruity side like you would expect uh -huh. it's supposed to be lighter and sweeter um and this pull i did tonight i'm i don't know that i i'm getting more of the green again so maybe it's user okay. error there but um it's it's interesting but it's not anything like amazing some people really hype up the geisha as like oh my goodness, it's like the best thing in the world. And I just don't know that that's true in my experience so far. Not always worth the <laughs> price tag, at least I'll say that, because I know there also can be super expensive. This one was not, but um, it, I uh -huh. would not pay overpay for it. it it's, I think it's just crazy um, how much some of these geishas could go for. It's crazy what people will pay for them. And I, the last one I bought, I definitely overpaid for, but I was just like, I got I to gotta try it. And then this one was like, I think it was like $3 more expensive than their standard hmm. bags at mm -hmm. Little Wolf. And I was like, okay, that's a worthwhile. If it's like that amazing, I'll spend the Oh, it's a, it's a Little Wolf. Or... It was, yes. Okay, cool. It is a Little Wolf, which is uh, which is great. They, I think this is actually the same geisha as before also. So it's from the same lot with the same farmers that they have a relationship mm. with. So I think 
maybe it's just that one. Like, I could try a different geisha. It probably tastes very different, but it's the same mm. altitude mm -hmm. and same farm. So, yeah, interesting. Definitely worth a try if you're a coffee person just to see what see what you experience. But Yeah, yeah. Well, I, Taylor, I wanted to mention too, I had a, a kind of tea experience recently. Oh I think I've mentioned in the past, right? I've like, I, I don't know. I just have this desire to understand more about tea. Yes. Um, it's it's like the opposite of coffee, right? Like, or like the, the other alternative kind of yes. uh, hot beverage. Um, and it's always been right outside my circles. Um, but there's a tea shop in Providence. It's called, I think, um, the Black Leaf. Um, and so I went there recently with my daughter and uh picked up some tea i think it was like a new tea blend that um she the owner i think like i want to say she probably curates all of the teas and so this one was called tennessee whiskey and, interesting uh, okay. i think it's i think it, yeah so it's black um i think it's just black tea leaves um apricot like dried apricot and also vanilla i think but it's also like smoky Mm. in a way and so i didn't smoke it how does it could be yeah you know i'm not sure but it does definitely like smell like you 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 know open the bag of loose leaves and you it smells almost like you know like tobacco or, or mm. it's just smoky somehow but i get the like i guess i get the tennessee whiskey vibe with it um yeah. it's super fascinating i've just never had like a tea experience like that before um do you like it is the question I, yeah like, I do like this? it. Yeah, cool. I do like it. I don't think I'd drink it every day. Um, it's like the smokiness is a little overpowering in this one. But uh, yeah, I don't know. I'm excited to just like drink a little bit more of it and uh, see what I think as time goes on. I was kind of like asking what a good like coffee alternative sort <laughs> of tea would be. Um, and uh, yeah, I went with that one. I think it was one of the newer ones that um, that she had, but... Uh, that's that's cool tea has the benefit of being able to be blended like that i don't know i kind of i don't prefer my coffees to be blended um yeah. at all because you just the origins you know you're identifying notes and stuff get kind of all mm -hmm. mixed up but in mm -hmm. tea i'm all for it i think mm -hmm. it's a great great idea yeah i think that's something that i just think is cool about tea that I'm it's all awesome. forward to like you can you know the different yeah different bones just seem to pull out a lot of different you can have very there's even more variety of tea obviously than there is compared to coffee hey before we jump into our discussion about this book taylor i mean i wanted to ask you a question about Please. this because this was your choice book and i wanted to ask it live um <laughs> why so, in the world no i'm just kidding go, go for it so I mean, I think I would, I don't think I'm wrong in saying that you've always had a type of affinity for nautical themed <laughs> items or, or like books. Am I wrong? You're not wrong. Yeah. Is that why you chose, did you choose this from, because of the title? I. Because there's a lighthouse? Not, although I'm not going to lie, there was an appeal to the lighthouse theme. There was, yeah. I, I knew I wanted to read something by Virginia Woolf, um, I had read Mrs. Dalloway, which is like her other best known work in the past. Um, and To the Lighthouse is, is probably the second best known uh, thing that she's ever written. And I was drawn to it. But yes, the name also is extremely compelling. 
we <laughs> I, like I have no shame that I judge books not only by their covers literally but also by their titles so <laughs> I'm I'm with you was there any initial appeal to the book for you because of the title also um I guess <laughs> I mean I was just looking forward to reading it anyway but um yeah I, although here's the thing is I was hoping they would actually like, you know, get to the lighthouse, but half of the book is them <laughs> not getting to the lighthouse, which we'll get into. Yeah. So the setting is this place that has a lighthouse, um, which, as you said, the, they basically never get there till the very, very end. Um, but this family, the, the Ramsey family, the setting is uh, early 1900. So prior to the start of uh, the first world war i think mm-hmm. and the ramsey family is living there there's a bunch of kids but really james is sort of the main child that's a, a priority in terms of the plot and uh as dylan read at the beginning of the podcast uh james really really wants to go to the lighthouse and um mrs ramsey sort of is like yeah we can go but mr ramsey is this like sort of uh, hard stance father figure um, and she p- keeps shooting down all of James's plans uh, and his illusions of going to the lighthouse I think it's sort of a fun family outing feel and that's this is something that six-year-old James really wants to do um, but Mr. Ramsey is sort of the thing getting in the way of them being able to go to the lighthouse but this goes on for more or less a third of the book is the family um, and their various friends coming to meet them at this vacation property. And uh, meanwhile, James wants to go to the lighthouse, but uh, they never really get to make it there. Mm-hmm. And it seems like the, the book is a lot more like it, it's a book about their thoughts and feelings rather than the actual unfolding events and uh, of the plot. Um, there, you know, it's, it's split into three sections. That that you just described might be the first one, and the second one is is like quite different. Um, it's shorter. First off, it's like very short in comparison to the first and third sections. Yep. Um, it also it almost seems to um, have a different narration style. It's almost as if the vacation house itself is the main character, kind of telling about the events. Um, of like it being like storm battered and um i think that there's a lot it's called this second section is called time passes and i think it kind of narrates a span of like maybe is it like 10 years worth and uh it just takes a very different approach than the first section where um it describes how the vacation house ages over time and it kind of gets becomes decrepit and um then also just mentions little um, points of the uh, of the of the lives of the people that we just like became acquainted with, and actually like a lot of them dying, and just telling in in a brief like paragraph about like the death of of little Andrew when he grew up and went into the war, and then he died, or Mrs. Ramsey, who was like seemingly the main character, um, who just suddenly one night just died. Yeah. Um, right. Just super weird. Just a, a very different kind of like. Um, stream of consciousness sort of um, way of telling a story. That's the the second part. Yeah, and then finally in the third part, 
uh, family or sort of what's left of the family that's since been sort of, you know, multiple family members have died in the meantime, a few of the children and Mrs. Ramsey, but uh, they finally kind of make it back to um, the, you know, the vacation home. And again, the, the idea of going to the lighthouse, uh, I think, I don't know, this idea of closure or kind of closing the loop um, in the book comes resurfaces. And one of the children is like, she's finishing a painting that she had started back in the first visit. And the narration is back to the beginning again. It feels like the same cadence as hmm. the way it started. Um, and then uh, right kind of towards the end, uh, you see the family finally, I, I guess, making it to the lighthouse is, I mm. guess, implied. I, I don't, or they get there finally um and it's sort of a full circle but i don't know if there's a lot of um it's hard to tell exactly what's going on because the plot is so uh non-driven by events but rather as you said dylan by the thoughts of the people who are experiencing all of these things um very peculiar way of writing i think compared to typical novels uh, in that you line by line experience what the people are experiencing rather than uh, a narration of the events themselves. Yeah, there's this, I think um, if we were to, like, it's hard to even say what the main plot line is uh, or even main themes, but I think one of them might be just this dynamic that Mr. Ramsey brings to the family and kind of this this the main idea is that like he is just not a good father he's so he's like a philosopher he's a writer and he's so wrapped up in his own head about like you know losing a legacy or like fearing that like future generations will not care about his writings and he's aging i think he's like 60 or so um it mentions at one point and he's just so blinded to the utter like miracle of life that's in front of him and his family. And he's like, he, he's just cruel to his children and selfish. And uh, he wants things from his wife, but he's not willing to reciprocate. Um, and so he, he's kind of like the villain or not the villain, but he's, he's the downer of the entire novel. Like, I mean, even the title of the book is to the lighthouse and mr ramsey is preventing them from going to the lighthouse like right for a majority of the book and then it seems like if james might be the kind of guiding child character yeah. then if we were to follow his trajectory the end of the book is him like finally proving his dad wrong and like going there um yeah. and finally getting to the lighthouse um and at one point, I think Mrs. Ramsey, his mom, she's like, she's just such a caring kind of like selfless, you know, figure who loves all of her children. And um, she her, she's also crushed when when her husband tells them they can't go. And she says something like, oh, James is going to remember this forever like children always remember these things forever and james does and so then later in life like that is still what's looming in his mind um right so there's just a lot of like i guess morals and insights that we can learn about this to be frank i didn't really enjoy the book yeah. uh it, it wasn't super compelling to me um but i do think that it has a lot to chew on as far as like direct 
to life applications for for its readers, um, or at least for someone who's like a father and a husband like myself. But we can get more into that later. Did you notice any, I don't know, other plot points that you think might um, have created like a, a theme that you could take away from the book? Yeah, I think... I don't know the the whole idea of going to the lighthouse as this goal in their heads is um, obviously it's written as overall. This is actually I'll just ask the question that we ask of many books, but I feel like if anything could be allegorical, this book could definitely fall into that category because there's mm. such a lack of actual events or mm. concrete plot lines. It makes it really easy to imagine this as you know for the author whatever getting to the lighthouse represented um or you know if for james it represented some happiness or some goal in life mm-hmm. and then this long-term thwarted goal <laughs> or or something i don't know but the obviously the theme of getting there as this ultimate end uh, plays a major part it comes up over and over again as you're reading and it's such a minor thing to build a whole book's plot on that you would never think to do it yourself um i see that as one major plot line but i think um you with mr ramsey in particular uh, you nailed it he is a representation i think i at least for the author of maybe a demeaning father figure but what i really like about virginia wolf is that she combines a lot of realism in the stream of consciousness. I think it's extremely realistic thought of a family in this time period. So James resents his father for much of it. And even Mrs. Ramsey resents Mr. Ramsey for a lot of his actions, but at the same time, they love him and their stream of consciousness shows that it's like on one line, they're like, they're seeing him as that sort of full of himself or wrapped up in his own stuff. And in the next line, they respect him for his work or they see that he's respected by other people. I feel like it's a both-and situation where mm. moment to moment, the person experiences different things. I think that's just an accurate representation of human existence that, you know, one second I feel this way and I think this way. And then because of some minor thing, my thoughts can change in a moment and I'm thinking a different way about the same thing. Uh did you did you see that? Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, I think so. Okay. Um, yeah, I know. Especially with Miss with with Mrs. Ramsey and and her husband, they like they they, you know, seem so like separate and almost like even enemies at some points. Yet there's moments they come together and like they yeah. don't ever in the, in those moments they're almost beautiful moments but it's like the other the other keeps wanting the other person to do something and neither of them do it and then that's kind of it and then they part ways but it's like almost still a sweet coming together despite their differences and opinion and and everything um and disappointments in each other um but it just like narrowly it misses the mark of being an entirely like romantic or like even compassionate moment but it's like just enough and then that's it you know 
<laughs> yeah. There's this great moment where Mr. Ramsey is looking at James and Mrs. Ramsey, I think from like through a window or from outside or whatever. And Virginia Woolf describes at length sort of the admiration he has for them and sort of, I think, thoughts about how he is perceived even in that moment. And then she flips it to the other point of view to Mrs. Ramsey looking out and she's like, she's full of disdain and resentfulness for him mm-hmm. and James also. Mm-hmm. And I think that's just a perfect image of that. Like, but again, I think that's what's so human is that, you know, we go through our days and yeah, with our spouses and people we're close to, there's a lot of times where we feel, Oh, like, yeah, this is, this is how it's supposed to be. This is a good picture. And then in those moments where we're resentful or we're, you know, we're envious or angry or whatever the thing is, that that it can change on a dime given the situation. Um, and mm-hmm. I think that that's a really uh, special part of writing from Virginia Woolf like this. Mm-hmm. And another aspect of that that you just mentioned, I noticed it, just in the description of Mrs. Ramsey, she, you know, she's like admired by everyone. She's almost this like matronly, like goddess figure to everyone um, everyone looks up to her in some way and she cares for like everyone and she's a great mother to her children. Um, yet I'd even say that she like, she provides the helpful like contrast and foil to Mr. Ramsey, who you kind of get frustrated with. You're like, okay, good. At least these children have a good mom. And then there's also a part when she kind of goes away and she's like, Although she is a good mother, she also needs her time alone. And there's a passage um, that I remember just reading um, that I feel like wraps up just mom life perfectly. (laughs) (laughs) Like you love your kids and you care for them and and you're there for them. And also like you just need to get away and be yourself, you know. And so she has a moment of like reprise um, for herself. Um, I, so that's kind of another one of those both and uh, kind of situations um, in the book. There, there's also uh, another character named Lily um, Brissett or Brissett, I think. Brisco, yeah. Brisco. Lily Briscoe, who I think is a painter who yeah. is just like joining them. I don't, I'm not clear on like why she's there or whatever, but I feel like she provides another type of foil to. Mrs. Ramsey. I mean, she falls more into like the traditional gender roles, um, you know, whereas Lily Briscoe has the opportunity, I think, to fall in love with another guy. But but she kind of like is more independent and, and I think re- rejects and, and declines that route um, in order to focus on her goal of painting. And uh, she's like pursuing this kind of as her, her main thing in life and not letting anything else get... Um, in front of it. Um, so I thought she was an interesting character too, just to add to the, you know, the mix. And she contrasted Mrs. Ramsey, you know, for yeah, better I, or for worse. I think Wolf uses the sort of the other characters as foils against the, the family or as a representation of their relationships and how they're doing and to sort of reveal them maybe mm. um mr ramsey has this moment at the dinner table where he like snaps at one of the guests over something stupid and even in the the time passes segment in the center um like using the house almost like a character right as a foil against um the chaos i think of the world so world war one had 
you know, become a thing in the meantime. And sort of the brokenness of the family and of the world and of the house are all sort of reflected in each other a little bit, I think. So, yeah, definitely the the characters and everything are just pointing out, I don't know, these these the brokenness in the people, really. Mm-hmm. Yeah. One and thing I, think I wanted... That's even... Oh, go oh. for it. And I think that's even a reflection of Virginia herself. Um, you know, I think that she, her in her life, she struggled with um, mental health issues and depression. Um, she ultimately ended her life by suicide, um, by drowning. Um, I think that she filled her pockets with rocks and walked into a river. Um, there's even some, I think she touches on that even. And there's moments in this book where characters speak about drowning <laughs> And uh, some of this book is kind of a dark meditation that I think is just on on the the dark emotions of life too. That I think are Virginia's own, you know. I think she's projecting some of her own, um, I guess, trauma maybe into the story. Even in the style of writing, I think you have to be a I don't want to say a particular type of person, but this is clearly someone who thinks things through very carefully and is very in their heads. And I can imagine that that, um, you know, turned into it maybe, you know, a dark way or in a dark place can be really sort of um, self-enforcing in a way that causes a spiral, uh, if that makes sense. I think, Mm -hmm. you know, there's a way in which I think I like her writing a lot because sometimes the, the writing style, it's hard to describe if you've never read it, but she like, punctuation is sort of optional sometimes and the sentences can be extremely run on you can have a whole page of writing in which there's not a single period and it's all thoughts that are sort of strung together and i think i like that some of the time at least because it is something i can identify with um just in terms of personality i don't know what it is but i think there's something about this stream of consciousness where if you're someone who's thinking about everything kind of all at once or you're thinking about a lot of things and you have them all in your head all of those feelings and emotions string together um and while you know i again didn't exactly see a darkness per se in any one thing although there were certainly dark parts of the novel uh i think overall i can see that becoming a downward trend that gets really um really sad and lonely i think that her writing style it reminded me a little bit of um william faulkner's writing yes maybe the more collected and like normal parts of his writing because his is just intentionally out there and wild but um even in section two like when um it describes some of the the deaths of each of these characters. It's just placed in this kind of like brief little like impersonal like bracketed text on the page. Um, And it just feels like a really impersonal way to let the audience know that, yeah, the main character you just read all about for a hundred or so pages uh, died. (laughs) Yep. You know? Um, And I feel like there's something to that, uh, that, just probably represents the um, maybe the like the modernist movement at this time and Virginia's own writing style and 
I think that she was in kind of a, a group of like a, a writer's guild of like modernist writers who were trying to just write in unconventional ways. And um, so I think, you know, that's one of the many ways this is a non-conventional novel. Yeah. I think if you can imagine the kind of literary world she's coming from is, is much more cut and dry for the most part. You know, a lot of authors are writing um, probably pretty narrative-driven works, and this is really just a completely different um, way of expressing something that maybe the reality of the world in a philosophical sense is not concrete and not something you can always describe in cut-and-dry terms, but rather mm. it's something that's experienced through the individual in this stream of consciousness. This is what they're thinking and feeling, and that's more, um, I don't know, it, it approximates truth or becomes closer to, uh, you know, the reality than having all of these events actually spelled out in exact terms. Um, mm. And I think there's some truth to that at some level that, you know, it's not, not as easy as this person says and thinks this and this person thinks the opposite. It's like, this is a pretty complicated um yeah, stream of someone's thought that's constantly changing. Mm. And mm -hmm. uh, yeah, her and I mean, even, you know, we talk about Joseph Conrad a lot on the podcast, but I think he sometimes touches on this, uh, this style, but not to this degree. Uh, if you were kind of put it on a spectrum, I think he has even more concrete plot and has a, you know, a story, you know, sort of ironed out. But there's times mm. when you sort of zoom in on the narrator or the thoughts of the narrator and you just hear sort of their internal monologue or dialogue with themselves about what's going mm. on. And uh, that really, it kind of can reveal a whole different part to a character or, or a story that you don't get in just, you know, something that is, you know, beginning to end a war and peace or, you know, something um, like uh, something by... I don't know. It just, it's different. Yeah. What do you say about moving on to our gospel conversation? Mm -hmm. yeah. One thing I was thinking about is just in terms of, you know, morality, I don't, because there were so many conflicting thoughts and emotions in the book, it was hard for me to nail down sort of maybe a moral directive in this as you know we try to pull something out of it is there anything in this that you saw that had some sort of moral um directive or kind of lesson that it was trying to teach hmm. yeah um yes but you know i don't know if it's actually the author's intent or not but <laughs> um uh i guess as a reader of the book, it, it impacted me in a significant way. Just like I mentioned, um, Mr. Ramsey himself is just a really kind of selfish father who doesn't uh, look out for the needs of his family and he pursues his own interests. And um, is as a result of that, he's quick to um, shut down the ideas of his children and he feels like he is owed something by his wife. Um, when he's done really nothing for her. And uh, I guess that is just, you know, um, I think it's just helpful. It's a helpful kind of rebuke 
to the temptation toward those desires that I think we all and I have. Um, and it, like, it, it's a family book. It's a, it's a, it's a novel about family and that family matters ultimately, mm-hmm. I think. And like these moments in life on vacation, especially you should cherish <laughs> more than your life's work or whatever your, you know, current, you know, career is or whatever. Um, I don't know if that's what Virginia is trying to write about, but that's the way that I perceive it. I value author's intent as the primary, you know, point of the book. But at least, but for me as a reader, you know, I don't think all meaning is subjective. However, I did experience (laughs) this to um, be like a, a, you know, I guess just a rebuke to me because as a parent, as a husband, there's times that I'm tempted to put myself first rather than my family. And I want to put that part of me to death. Um, Yeah. And I, I guess um, I saw like a glimmer of, of just how terrible that is in Mr. Ramsey. And so it's helpful for me. Um, and even just the idea that Virginia stretches across from the plot from beginning to end that, you know, children are, like remember these things that you say to them, um, it, you know, throughout their life, whether that is always true or not. Um, it's a good thing to consider in the way that you speak to your children and the impact that you want to have on your children and their, yeah. their lives. Um, it reminds me a little bit of um, like in Ephesians 5, I, you know, I was spending some time recently um, in, in this chapter and it's where Paul writes to the Ephesian church about the God-ordained authorities that have been established for the flourishing of his church and his good sign. And um, one of those structures is just parents, over their children, right? And children should obey their their parents um, and the Lord for this is right. Um, yet he also rebukes fathers, but he what he says to them is this one command. He says, fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and the admonition of the Lord. Um, so kind of of all these commands, the one command for fathers is, do not provoke your children to anger or exasperate your children. And that's like precisely, I think, what drives this whole plot of this book. <laughs> and yeah. so in a sense, what we see, this book is just the end result of um, that tendency, you know. And I think we're li- I think if you're a parent listening, I think you're lying to yourself if you, if you don't feel that deep down in your soul as a temptation that vies for your, you know, your, your priority. And it's something that, I've personally just had to, um, you know, give to the Lord and, um, yeah, he's, he's, he's gracious and allowing me to, um, grow in that way and be sanctified and, uh, understand the joy of sacrifice. Yeah. There's definitely a, a theme of parents and family in this book. So that's something I, that didn't appear to me. So that's, uh, that's pretty, pretty neat. I think for me, again, maybe less than the actual novel itself, but more the style of writing for me is what what gets me, what draws me in. And I think there's a lot of value, even for Christians, and and as you said earlier, definitely we're, we're not in the camp that would say that, you know, truth is subjective. And, you know, I think maybe Virginia herself would fall into a camp where, you know, you're you're moving towards that realm where the individual experience and that, that thoughts of that individual are what are shaping reality and the world. 
and um, I don't think that's the case. You know, we think there's an objectivity to the world and to the universe um, because God is is the creator and outside of it and all of that. Um, but I think it is a really helpful image for us to remember that like human beings are complicated people um, that have really complex and often contradictory thoughts. And I think there's it, this book just illustrates it so well for me because sometimes I'm reading it. And I'm like, I understand the thought process because sometimes I think that way and I experience those emotions in that way. Um, and I think it may be in the past we've Christians overall have been, um, you know, accused and maybe rightfully so of being reductionist about how people think and experience the world. And not that that's an excuse for anybody or, um, you know, or anything, but I think it's just important for us to remember that human beings think in a complicated way. Uh, and we experience the world in a complicated way. And, uh, I, I think it just led me to have maybe compassion for, for people who are, you know, mm. maybe stuck in dealing with, you know, patterns or behaviors or sin. And we're looking at, you know, this family and how they're interacting with each other and the, you know, the resentfulness and those things that we think ultimately stem from the fall. But that's just being human is like having those impulsive thoughts of like, oh, I resent my father so much because he's getting in the way of this thing. And as you just said, Mr. Ramsey sort of squashing the dreams and the, the desires of his child um, for, for not a good reason. But uh, in all of that, I was like, that I'm, that's me. <laughs> I go through my day experiencing life that way sometimes, and I have a bad attitude when things don't go my way and when things are really hectic and things are going wrong. Um, and it just drove me towards grace that there's nothing else that fills that gap for me other than that um, when I have impulsive stream of consciousness thoughts that are starting to go in the wrong direction. But, uh, you know, God's grace is there to meet me in that moment. And then, you know, I think if anything, the, the kind of track away from the book then is that because I have that, because we have Christ and the Holy Spirit, that there is a route out of that pattern um, and that there's ultimately a redemptive you know, arc, I hope, in my life. Uh, but unfortunately, I don't really see that too much in the lives of this family. Um, even as they arrive at the lighthouse, whatever that means, I just don't see much of redemption in, in the story itself. Mm -hmm. Would you agree with that, that there's not mm -hmm. really a, a final resting on redemption here? Yeah, certainly. It's kind of like a continual, like, I don't know, the, the plot strives forward and all. it's like, I feel like it continues in multiple points to almost reach that consolation and it keeps falling short of it. And even like, you know, when they get to the lighthouse, finally after 10 years and most of their family, you know, has, has passed or whatever. Like, it's not the same. It's not what they thought it was. Um, so even, like, the end goal of the very title of the book is, like, a disappointment in the end. And it's it's futile, you know. <laughs> There's been times in the past here in the podcast we touch on the just theme of absurdity and futility in life. And this book, I think, uh, kind of encapsulates that in a way that... Um, yeah, I mean, kind of is depressing, right? Um, 
but I'm thankful that we have hope in the gospel that uh, the things that we endure and go through are all working in purposeful ways um, in the lives of those who are in Christ. Definitely. I think that final, you know, end to, to the lighthouse when they finally get there, but you don't really know what it means. <laughs> and there's sort of this really unsatisfying resolution. You know, I think just for, for our sakes and that, that grander story, always reading these novels in the, the light of what is the big, the bigger picture, the bigger story that we think shapes all of human existence, really, that there is a better resolution <laughs> and that comes through the story of redemption um, and that there's really no other way. And uh, I think that's a much more satisfying ending than this one. Mm-hmm. Would you recommend this book? I don't know. I found myself really enjoying it a lot of times. Um, again, I think I just have some sort of affinity internally for the writing style, but I will readily admit that I do not think it is for everyone. Um, I know, I would venture to say probably most people would not enjoy reading this. Um, so, I, yes, give it a shot. Try it. But if you know, if you make it through the first few chapters and you're like, not for me. I, w- I wouldn't blame you for not wanting to read through it. <laughs> what about you? Would you recommend it? Uh, probably not. <laughs> yep. That's what I thought. Probably not. Yeah, there's better things. There's better things to read and use your time with. Yeah. People have enough. only, so, you know, you only have so much time these days. <laughs> um, yeah, don't waste your breath on this. <laughs> definitely. I think it is, it definitely is a classic, um, and she's an important writer of the, mm-hmm. the 20th century but yeah if if uh kind of if you're not willing to really jump into it and and think through what's happening probably not for you <laughs> yeah well next uh month we're going to be looking at a picture of dorian gray by oscar wilde yes another one of actually one of the first classics i think i ever read and Wow. is that right so yeah i think so <laughs> it was like really early on in my my journey someone recommended it to me at a coffee shop no less and i oh. decided to pick it up so look at wow that. perfect yeah love it so yeah i i think i read half of it once yeah and then i stopped but yeah looking forward to it i feel like this is gonna that's gonna be a great one because i know our interpretation is gonna be vastly different than how modern (laughs) literature interprets oscar wilde and the book itself so well i'm sure we'll have lots of fun (laughs) (laughs) dude you gotta love it you gotta love reading books that have different worldviews and perspectives or even books that are now interpreted by modern readers differently than maybe the author (laughs) intended it i don't i can't speak for that book but um yeah there's something there's something good about being you know encountering different viewpoints Definitely. That's why we're doing this. Right. Well, hey, thank you for listening to this episode of Redeeming Reads. We'll see you next month. Bye.